And see, over the last 2,000 years that the church of Jesus has existed, I think we all know that we've picked up a lot of rules, we've picked up a lot of traditions and nuances, we've picked up a lot of baggage along the way. So what we want to do is just kind of go back to the bare bones, clean out all the clutter, and say, Jesus, what do you want your church to look like? Not why have we made it, but what do you want it to look like? And where do you think we would go if we wanted to find out what Jesus wants his church to be like? Where would we go to find the answer to that? Any guesses? Maybe the Bible, anybody? You're like, I don't know, Solomon, where would we go? The Bible, right? This is an amazing book, friends. Amen? This book is heads and shoulders above any other book that's been printed or published in the history of the world. This is, in fact, the very first book that was ever printed on a printing press. There's been more Bibles that's been printed and published than any other book. By out far, the record number of Bibles is, is second to none. It's been translated into more languages than any other book has been translated. Some 25, 2,600 languages this book has been translated into. It's an amazingly durable book. It has stood the test of time. It's been attacked. It's been burned. It's been banned. It's been rejected. In fact, one of my favorite stories concerning the durability of the Bible comes from an Enlightenment era named, philosopher named Voltaire. You might have read about Voltaire, learned about him when you were in high school, a French philosopher, philosopher lived during the 1700s. Voltaire once said, kind of in his arrogance and in his pride, a hundred years from now, you will not be hearing about the Bible anymore. What's interesting is, is that 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house where they used it to print and to store Bibles. Isn't that amazing? So this book has outlasted communist leaders that tried to ban it. It's outlasted other religions that tried to debunk it. And it's outlasted all the cynics and skeptics and atheists and mockers who've tried to discredit it as well. Someone once said that the Bible is an anvil and all around it are just a bunch of broken hammers. This is an amazingly powerful book. Billions of people over the past several years who've read this book and absorbed this book will tell you that it has changed completely the course of their life. It's changed the way they thought. It's changed the way they behaved. It's changed the way they raised their parents. It raised their children. It's changed the kind of parent they become. It's changed everything about them. I can speak personally to this, about the power of this word. Back in 1988, as a 15-year-old kid home one summer, my family did not attend church. We were kind of an irreligious family. But for some reason, only God only knows in his sovereignty. I remember going over to the bookshelf just a few days after school was let out for the summer, and I pulled out my dad's brown King James Bible, and I just started pouring through it, reading the Gospels, reading Genesis, reading the epistles. And friends, it wrecked me when I found Jesus in a good way. I now had a different outlook of life. I now felt like I had meaning and purpose. 
I now knew why I was here on planet Earth. My values changed, my morals changed, my direction of my life was completely altered, and I can attest to this. I would not be the pastor of this church. I would not be married to a woman named Alicia. I would not have three children named Shelby, Isabel, and Seth had it not been for this book. Because this book completely changed the course of my life and set my feet on a new path. And that's what David said God's word will do. You remember what David said in Psalm 119? He said, your word, Lord, is like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That in this very dark world that we live in, God's word gives us direction, it gives us guidance, and it gives us hope as we make our way and walk through the journey of this thing called life. And I shudder to think of where my life would be had this not, have my life not crossed paths with this book. And I think that several of you in here today could say, Solomon, that's my story as well. Now, Statistics tell us that 93% of us have one of these in our home. Probably even have more than one. But those same statistics tell us that less than half of us read this book on a regular basis. And I think that maybe the reason why a lot of people don't read the Bible is because of one reason. They're confused by it. I mean, you might know some of the key stories, some of the key characters, some of the subplots that are taking place in Scripture, but I think that maybe the reason why so many people are confused by this book and kind of intimidated by this book and just kind of leave it on the shelf instead of engaging it is for one reason, because nobody has ever explained to you how everything in this book all fits together. So today, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this dangerous book, and I want to give you a framework whereby you can understand this book and all the other 66 books that make up this book. And by the time we're done today, you're going to be able to say what the whole story of the Bible is in just one sentence. So what I need from you today is not just your time. I don't need you just sitting in a pew and, and gazing. I need your attention. Because if you'll give me the next 25, 30 minutes, you are going to leave here today with a true treasure, okay? So be prepared to write a lot to you. I've got some great things for you to put down in your bulletin today so you can take it home as a resource. Now, some of you who read like certain authors, and probably the reason why you like the authors that you do is because your author has a way of developing the plot from just the first few pages of the book you're reading, and they just kind of grab you from the get-go. And in the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, we see the plot unfolding, all right? And there's three key events that, that are going to set up the plot, all right, of what's going on. Here's key event number one, and I want you to write this down, all right? God desires relationship with human beings. That's key event number one. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible gives us this assertion 
that anything that was, anything that is, or anything that ever will be can only come about or has come about by the directly expressed will of God. He is the one from everlasting to everlasting. He has always been. He will always be. It's no coincidence or no mistake that 31 of the first 32 verses of Genesis reference God. So it's very clear from the very beginning who this story is all about. And it's about God and what he longs for. And this eternal God and his creative prowess, he he creates everything that is and he creates planet Earth. And scripture tells us in this kind of mind-blowing way that the crowning achievement of God's creative work, what he calls good above everything else, what he's most proud of, it's not Yellowstone National Park. It's not Grand Canyon. It's not the Himalayas or any of the other wonders of the world that we, you and I ooh and awe at. Do you know what God's crowning achievement was in creation? It was mankind. It was Adam and Eve created in the image of God. And here's what we read. Here's a key verse, Genesis 2-7. It says this about what God did for us. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now this is key here because the word that's used here for breath, the breath of God, is the Hebrew word ruach, okay? And it means the spirit of God. The presence of God was breathed into mankind. So God breathes his presence into humankind saying, I want to be in relationship with you. He doesn't do that with the animals. He doesn't give the animals his breath. He gives man his ruach, his spirit, his presence. All right? Now, in order for a relationship to be authentic, the relationship has to go two ways, right? It's a give and it's a take. It's, it's reciprocal, okay? And this is why God gives mankind something that we call free will, all right? Now, because, here's the reason why we have free will, because you can only love authentically if you have the free will not to love, if you have the free will to withhold love. That's the only way that love can really be authentic, right? I don't want my wife to love me because she's forced to love me. I want her to love me because of the three billion other men that walk planet Earth, she made a decisive choice to choose me. She could have not chosen me, but she chose to choose me. And so God creates Adam and Eve, and he expresses this desire to them to walk with them, for them to be in his presence, because he's given them, above all creation, his spirit. And here's what God says. I've given you this amazing paradise, this garden, and there's trees, and there's streams, and there's fruit, and there's everything for your delight. It's created for you. Enjoy it and enjoy one another, except for, you see that one tree over there? See the fruit growing on that tree? That's a no-no. Everything else is for yours to the taking, as much or as little as you want. But make sure you don't ever 
take anything from that tree. Now, this is what God's doing. God is giving Adam and Eve, in the form of that tree, a way for them to express their part of the relationship. Their part of intimacy, their part of closeness with God is to avoid that tree, all right? Because listen to me, folks. There is no such thing as free will. There is no such thing as free choice if there is no option for disobedience. So God had to create something whereby which they could choose to engage in it or not and thereby show their relationship with him or the rejection of that relationship. Now, here's key event number two. Not only does God desire relationship with human beings, but people like us broke the relationship. When mankind bit into that fruit, through that act of rebellion, here's what mankind is saying to God. God, you no longer solely get to choose between good and evil. We now will choose between what is good and evil. And ever since that day in the garden, every human being believes they possess the capability to decide what is good and what is evil. You wonder why the world's in chaos? Because six billion human souls believe that they have within themselves the capacity to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And the result, God said, on the day that you do this, you will surely what? Die. Question, did they die that day? No. They, they lived along for quite, quite several more years. But there's something that, there's a kind of death that's even more significant than a physical death. Physical death is just kind of like the casualty at the end of the greater death that was experienced. Here's what died that day. What died that day in the garden was mankind's capacity to intimately relate to their creator. That's what died. That's what was killed. That's what was destroyed through the bite. No longer did we have the capacity to intimately relate to our creator. So now, people like us, we're in need of a new birth. We're in need of a restoration, a regeneration of some kind. We now need some way, somehow, to have intimate communion with God restored to us somehow. And this is where the story takes an amazing turn. Event number one, God desires a relationship with us. Event number two, people like us broke the relationship. Event number three, here you go. God moved to restore the relationship with us. From this point on, God has one goal, God has one objective, God has one story that he's going to try to unfold throughout the pages of history, and that is to restore fellowship with mankind that we broke. And we see this right after God talks to Adam and Eve, right after they've sinned, and then their rebellion to God said, we are going to choose what is good and evil now. As God addresses them and their disobedience, he also addresses the serpent that we read tempted them. And here's what God says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Listen to this. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who is the he there? And who is the his heel? Most scholars would tell you that what Genesis 3.15 represents is the first prophetic idea of the coming of a savior, of the one who would restore that which is broken between God and mankind. God is saying essentially to the enemy here, you might have won the battle, but you are not going to win the war because I'm already putting the plan into motion that there's going to come one who is going to crush your head and he is going to restore the relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. And through his sacrificial death and through his obedient life, you are going to find your end and people, mankind is going to find hope once again. So, here is the story of the Bible in a sentence. You ready for this? Get ready to write this down. How God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. Now, I'm going to say this, and then I want you to repeat it after me, because this is central today, okay? So repeat after me. How God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. Let's say that one more time. How God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. That's the whole story of the Bible. So somebody ever asks you, man, I've been reading the Bible. Do you know what, what's, what's the whole idea of the Bible? You can say, glad you asked, right? I know, because the whole story of the Bible is how God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 12, I told you that Genesis 1 through 12 kind of sets up the plot. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, things really start to turn, because this is where God is now going to initiate his plan of what it is he's going to do to restore the relationship with people like us. And it involves a very, very key central figure in the Old Testament, a guy named, anybody want to take a guess? Thank you. Yeah, you, you're getting this, aren't you? His name is Abraham. And here's what God does. God makes Abraham three promises that sets up everything else that's going to unfold in the Bible. It all comes from these three promises that God makes him. So in Genesis 12, God taps a guy named Abraham says, Abraham, I want to do something through your life. And what I love about this story is that Abraham, he wasn't particularly anybody special. He didn't come from a real religious family. He lived in a time where there was lots of pagan worship. In fact, his father worshipped other gods. But God chose Abraham and God gives Abraham a series of three promises, all right? And again, this is where everything else is going to unfold with, okay? Let me give you what those three promises are. Here they are. I want you to write these down, okay? Promise number one, I am going to give you a land to dwell in, okay? Promise number two, 
God says, I am going to make your descendants into a great nation. I'm not only going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the descendants who are going to populate that land, okay? And here's the whole reason why. Here's why I'm giving you the land. Here's why I'm giving you all the descendants. Here's why. Number three, I am going to bless the entire world through your offspring. In other words, there's going to come through your line, Abraham, the thousands and thousands and millions of people that are going to be your descendants. There's going to come one. And he's going to bring a promise, and he's going to bring hope, and he's going to be blessing to all the people of the earth. So how did God fulfill these promises to Abraham? Well, first, we read shortly after Genesis 12 that God takes Abraham to the land of Canaan, says, see as far as you can see, I want you to walk this direction, I want you to walk that direction, everything you step off, everything you see, this land is going to be yours, it's going to be for your descendants. It's the land of Canaan, what we know as present day Israel or or Palestine, and God said, it's yours now, Abraham, for you and your descendants. Number two, God gives Abraham descendants. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the idea that anything is possible and how God took a a guy who's almost 100 years old and his wife who's almost 90 and he allowed them to be parents of a child called Isaac. And Isaac had Esau and Jacob and Jacob had all these kids that we call the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? And eventually Abraham's descendants all lived in Egypt under slavery, under Pharaoh. And this is where the whole Moses story becomes so important because Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh... You need to let God's people go. We need to make our way back to the promised land. Why do they call it the promised land? Because it's the land that God promised Abraham his ancestors, his his, uh, predecessors would live in, or those people who came after him. So Pharaoh, you need to let us go so we can go back to our land and worship God because that's where he's calling us to. And then finally, the third promise would be the blessing, the coming of a Savior, a Messiah who we call Jesus the Christ. He would come through Abraham's offspring, and this Jesus would be the answer to restoring fellowship with God that we broke in the garden. So this promise to Abraham, it's the hinge on which the entire rest of the Bible turns. So God paints this idea in Abraham's mind. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to create a people out of you. And through 2,000 years of your descendants having children and them having children and them having children, there's going to come one. And he's going to make all the difference for the rest of humanity. So, what's the story of the Bible? How God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. Repeat after me again, okay? How God worked in history to restore the relationship with people like us. Now, I told you when you came in today that I'm going to give you a way that you can have the synopsis of the Bible in one sentence. Here's the Bible in one sentence, the whole gist of it, the theme of it, what God's about. And I also told you that I'm going to give you a framework by which you can understand not just this book, but how all the other 66 books fit into making this one cohesive book, okay? So let's go ahead and do that now, all right? Here's point number one, all right? 
Point number one of the Bible is this. A Savior is coming. Do you know what books comprise this or give this idea and rolls out this idea? It's the book Genesis through Malachi. All right, the 39 books of the Old Testament. They shout loud and clear, a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming, a Savior's coming. And we have prophets who write in this 2,000-year span, all right, from Genesis to Malachi. And they predict and they say, this is what the promised one is going to look like. These are the circumstances under which he's going to be born. This is what will characterize his life. This is the kind of death he's going to die. And he's not going to be uh, subject to death like you and I are. He's going to raise victoriously over death. And over 300 prophecies are given over this massive time period so that we can understand and identify the promised one when he comes. The Savior's coming. Here's like how men like Isaiah said it. For to us, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And this same Isaiah, foreshadowing the kind of death that Jesus would die, he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's just a couple of over 300 prophecies that these men speak out over time saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and this is what you need to be looking for. Point number two, the Savior has come. Not only is he coming, he's come. Do you know where we read about this? Which books kind of highlight this, encapsulate this? It's what we call the Gospels. It's what we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they give in great detail the extraordinary circumstances around his birth. The amazing, extraordinary things that Jesus did in his life and the things that he performed that that no other person could ever do. And they talk to us about the extraordinary death and his extraordinary resurrection over death. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. And in these Gospels, this same Jesus makes a declaration. He claims to be the promised one of Abraham. I am the one that God spoke of millennia ago who would come and crush the head of the serpent and restore that which was broken between a holy God and sinful man. I'm the one. Here's how he said it in John 14, 6. I am the way, singular, exclusive, the truth, singular and exclusive, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am exclusively the one who can heal that which is broken between the creator and his creation. I can bring the intimacy that was once lost and it can now be found with the Father through me. And Jesus and Jesus alone had the exclusive rights and authority to make that claim because he did something no one else had ever done. He walked out of his own grave. Do you know who somebody is who walks out of his own grave? He's anything he says he is, right? 
And Jesus proved this by his obedient life and his resurrection from the dead. And so many other things, the miracles, the prophecies that were fulfilled in him, Jesus proved this about himself. And then there's the third point. The Savior is coming back. And how to live until he does. You know where we find this? Acts through Revelation. The book of Acts through Revelation is all about this idea. There's a Savior who's coming back. He was promised to come. He came, and he's coming back again. Now, this is how you live in light of that. For the people of God who've been restored back into their intimate relationship with the Father, who can now commune with him intimately because of Christ, this is how you live. This is how these kinds of husbands love their wives. This is how these kinds of people parent their children. This is how these kinds of people partner with God to share their faith, to extend acts of compassion. This is how to be a dangerous people in a dangerous church in a world that God desperately loves. That's what Acts through Revelation is all about. Here's what it is, friends. The story of the Bible is all about the incredible lengths our loving God went to to restore that which we broke. But here's the truth of the matter. It will only be incredible to you if you receive it. It's only incredible if you accept the grace that it offers. It's only incredible if in your heart of hearts you are ready and prepared to meet the Savior when he comes again. And when the Bible talks about doing life eternally with the Father in his kingdom, in his presence forever and ever, you know how it used, you know what it, it, it uses to describe what that's like? Incredible. Beyond that which any of us can think or imagine or even begin to fathom what that would be like. It's going to be beyond our wildest imagination. So, what can you do this morning to make some progress with what you've heard this morning? Now that you know the plot of of the three key events of how everything got set up. Now that you know the promises of what God said, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be faithful to do it until it's done. Now that you know the point of every section of Scripture, that one is about a Savior who's coming, the other's about a Savior who's come, and the other about a Savior who's coming again, and how to live until he does. Here's what you can do. For some of you, the step that you need to take is to just get a translation of God's word that you really understand. Like many of you, I grew up with the King James Version Bible. Anybody else in here? Yeah. All right. King James Version was written over 400 years ago. And it's a great translation if you're over 400 years old, okay? And some of you who might like to still use it, that's great. But for some of you, the barrier, the confusion, why you're intimidated with, with this book is because it's not speaking the language that you speak. 
For instance, let me, let me just give you a brief example a little bit of, of how one verse reads in the King James compared to how it reads like in the New Living Translation, which is one that I like to use. Okay, here's, here's Psalm 119.9 in the King James. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Okay? Now you can think about that, process it, and do a little digging to kind of get to what he's talking about there. Or you can read it in the New Living Translation if it says, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. Ah, okay, I get that, right? That, that registers, that's clear, that, that's concise, that, that, that's speaking the kind of language that I speak. So some of you, what I would encourage you to do is if the book intimidates you, if it confuses you, get a translation that, that, that you can read and digest that makes sense. And if you want some recommendations from me, I'll, I'll recommend them to you. I like the New Living Translation. I like the New International Version. Um, there, there's others out there that I think do a good job, all right? And they're not paraphrased versions or transliterations. They're actual translations of the original languages, okay? Second thing, no-brainer here. If you have a Bible, read it. Just read it. And the Bible is never meant to be a sprint where we just got to get through as many verses in a day as we can. It's meant to be more of a marathon where I just read a chunk and I meditate on it and I dwell on it and I just kind of let it make its way in here and I'm introspective and I ask myself things about it and I dig and I, and I learn more about it. Just a chapter a day. And some of you might be like, well, where do I start, Solomon? Here's where I would suggest you start. Start in one of the Gospels. Start with the culmination of the Savior who's come. Learn more about Jesus, who's the central character of the whole plot. And just read about him and understand what makes him so unique and significant. Maybe read about 1 John, which tells us again how we're to live in light of the fact that he's coming again. Read about James. James is probably the most practical book of all the New Testament when it comes to Christian living. Go back to Genesis and read about how everything fell apart and God's plan to restore everything. Just a chapter a day. And if you miss a day, it's no big deal. Just go back and read it when you have time. And let me tell you something else as well. And we've kind of gotten away from this in here because of the era of technology and just the world we live in. But start opening up your Bibles when I'm preaching. Because I could be telling you things up here that are nowhere in the book that you hold. And there's some people in positions like mine that have done that before and took people down a really, really bad path. You need to check out and make sure what I'm telling you is exactly from the word of God. So whether your Bible is like this and it's letter-bound or whether it comes in a digital form and you have to open up the app when you get in here, whatever way it is that works for you, let's not depend upon the screen, let's not depend necessarily on the notes, Let's depend upon what does God's word say as you read it. Now, for those of you who are going to go prepare for communion and help serve that, would you just quietly slip out for a moment? Because um, I've got to share some things with everybody else. I'm going to remind everybody else of something. I want to remind you what an amazing thing this is. See, just like the Bible, we can kind of take this for granted. We can kind of do this because it's tradition 
or it's the ritual of our church, or it's just what you do when you go to church, right? You take communion. Let me remind you what an amazing thing this is. Do you know what this is? This is the promise of he who would crush the enemy's head. That's what this is. The story of one that would come and the sacrifice he would make to do that. You know what this is? This is 4,000 years ago, God saying to Abraham, Abraham, through you I'm going to bring one to the world and he's going to change humanity forever if they'll let him. He has the capacity to change your eternal trajectory, to change the kind of life you live here and now. That's what this represents, Abraham. One is coming. Do you know what this represents? It represents every prophet's pen as he wrote his words down in prophecy about the one who would come, the life he would live, the death he would die, the glorious resurrection that would be his, and the eternal kingdom he would establish. That's what this is. This is the answer to fellowship with God for the capacity for me to intimately commune with my creator. It's represented in this body broken, blood shed. That's what this is. And every time we partake of this, scripture says we're doing something. We are telling a story. Every time you eat, every time you drink, you're telling a story. You're telling God's story. Here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death that a Savior came until he comes again, that the Savior is coming again. If you've made Jesus your Savior, if you've called out to him in faith, if you have turn from your life of sin which broke community between God and man in the beginning it's called repentance if you've been baptized into Jesus and clothed yourself with Christ scripture says and here's what we want to do we want to invite you to tell this story again this morning right where you are that as it comes just tell the story the one who came the one who's coming again and everything this represents. If you've not made that decision for Jesus, you are missing out on the incredible life that God has planned for you, the incredible eternity that awaits those who come to God through the person of Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning and you realize, hey, I want to be part of God's story, then won't you join us in the back porch this morning? And we'll prepare for your baptism today. But for the rest of us, let's just close right now and pray during this time. Father, I thank you that your story really is clear of what it is that happened and the fact that you took matters into your own hand and you gave to us exactly what we needed, a savior. One who would crush the power of the enemy and the curse of sin, one who would restore to mankind the capability and the capacity 
to intimately commune with you. But it came at a cost. It came at God putting on flesh, coming to earth, living the life that we failed to live, dying the death that should have been ours, but that death was a sacrificial death. And through that, our capacity to relate to you was once again restored. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us this as a reminder each week that the story continues. It's not just about what happened or what promised. It's about what will happen and the promise that is yet to come. So thank you, Lord, that we get to participate in this story. And I pray, Lord, today that if there's someone who can't participate in this story because they, they haven't reached out to Jesus, they haven't made things right with you through the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, I pray that this time they'll use to come back and to talk to myself or one of the elders, and that they'll become part of your greater story. So Lord, we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do for us. In the name of the coming one, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.